kgp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. As always, this is an opportunity to dialogue over the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. There are 66 books, no more, no less. But it's the Word of God, the infallible, eternal Word of God, one book that is worth studying and learning so that God can change our lives and bring us to faith in Christ. If you have a question this morning that you'd like to discuss from God's Word or some issue you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on, the lines are open. The number locally, again, is 525-1859. That's an 843 number, 843-525-1859. We also have a toll-free number for those outside of South Carolina. Maybe you'd like to use that. That number is 877. The call letters of our station, WAGP 980. Uh, You can also email us directly into the studio. And the email address that will come up on our screen with your question is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. tbl at wagp.net. If you call, you can go on the air, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and remain totally anonymous. Rick, as always, it's a pleasure to be here today for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and we've got a number of questions that have come in, and uh, also, of course, we give priority to any live callers, so uh, feel free to do so. Uh, Our first question comes in from a young lady named Carol. She writes, I come and visit your church whenever we're in town. I have a question about a book I started to read recently. Being in a military town, um, I'm wondering if you've heard of it and if you have a, uh, a comment on this book on Romans 13, The True Meaning of Submission by Timothy Baldwin, a Jewish He's an attorney, and uh, also his son, I believe, Dr. Chuck Baldwin, wrote it. Um, And she gives a couple of uh, websites where you can find out more about them. We'll get to that question in just a second. As I said, we always give preference to live callers, so we'll take this live caller first and then come back to that dictated. Hello, good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, gentlemen. Um, Thanks for taking my call. Um, I don't have a Bible in front of me, so I'm working on the cuff here, but I definitely have a question for you, please. Um, I think it's in Matthew, but it might be more than one gospel, where it says, um, whatever is bound in heaven, it, or it, whatever you bind in, it, on earth is bound in heaven, and loose, loose, whatever's loosed on earth is loosed in heaven, or vice versa. I don't understand that. I mean, I understand the context. I know the words, but I don't understand what he's saying. Well, it's a good question. Let me. Uh, it, it's really found twice in Matthew's account. Uh, the first time is in Matthew 16. They're at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks, and what a place to ask it, because it's a place where, 
you can visit today, and it's a shrine uh, dedicated to a multiplicity of different gods. And it's in that locale that Jesus asked the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, uh, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So people had different takes on who the Lord Jesus was. Some said, well, you're John the Baptist. You're, you're, you're the forerunner of Messiah. You're not Messiah or you're Elijah. And uh, the Bible speaks of the second coming of Elijah in the book of Malachi that will precede though the second return of Christ, not the first, but you know, they had different takes, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter steps up to the plate and he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. You didn't figure this out on your own, Simon Peter. This is something that my heavenly Father gave to you by direct revelation. And then he said, and I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, a stone is what the Greek word means. And upon this Petra, this bedrock referring to himself, Christ, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this verse is used in different ways, especially by our Roman Catholic friends. Uh, they use a translation of the Bible that was done in the fourth century by St. Jerome Uh, Jerome was a great scholar in his day, and he took the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts and put it in the study language of the day, which was primarily Latin. That was the language of the scholar. The only problem with Latin, like English, is that it has limitations. Whenever you take the Bible out of the original languages and put it into a receptor language, there will be some limitations. And there's certainly one as it relates to Peter. Uh, in his name. And so in the Latin Bible, it would read, I say to you that you are a rock and upon this rock, I will build my church. And the thought is, is that the church is built on Peter. At least that's how the Roman Catholics ended up interpreting that. And you could come up with that conclusion from the Latin Bible, but it would be impossible to come up with that conclusion from the Greek New Testament. Because Jesus is using a play on words. You're Petros, a stone, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. But even if someone didn't know uh, Greek, they could figure that out from the rest of the Bible because that's the imagery that God gives throughout the New Testament. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So the foundation of the church is the Lord Jesus. Now, the apostles are pictured in the superstructure like pillars, but the foundation is Christ, or sometimes the imagery of he's the cornerstone and we're the stones built upon it, imagery that Peter himself uses. But because they view Peter as the foundation of the church, the first pope, the way they're going to affect, uh, interpret this binding and loosing statement that you raise is determined by a false interpretation of verse 18. So then they take verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Uh, That's literally how it reads, whatever you shall bind on earth. And if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, sometimes if there is an important Greek nuance, they'll indicate it in the margin. And they do here, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound 
in heaven. In other words, you're not really making, you know, new decisions. You're just affirming what God has said. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So the way Catholics interpret this is they say, well, since the church is not built on Christ, but he built it on Peter, he's the first pope. The keys here represent, in their mind, authority that are passed down from pope to pope um, through the process that they use as popes are elected, such that when a pope officially speaks on an issue, then he speaks with the same authority as Christ. And so they would not say, in fairness to them, that everything a pope has said is true. But when a pope has spoken ex cathedra, that is from his chair, on an issue of faith and morals, that he speaks with absolute authority. Well, again, the the problem with that is, number one, uh, the interpretation of verse 18 is faulty. Number two, the idea of keys. What's a key for? A key is to open things. And Peter is given a unique privilege of opening the gospel first to the Jews. He's the one who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the gospel. And then he is given the unique privilege of opening the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10, where Cornelius and his household are saved. And third, it's faulty because if you take the statement of verse 19, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, that authority is extended past Peter when you come to Matthew 18. And that's the second time this is referenced. And it's in the context of church discipline. He says, if your brother sins, you go and reprove him in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. And then he says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you got a brother who's in some kind of open sin and it's not any kind of sin. It's a, a sin of a serious nature in which one, it's public and two, you know, it's bringing potential disrepute to the cause of Christ. It, it has, I should say, it's not always a public sin, but it has the potential to bring great disrepute if it becomes a public sin. So when you see a person in this kind of sin, and, and the epistles, I think, interpret this for us um, in terms of where these kinds of disciplinary actions should be taken. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, you have a man who's living sexually immoral, and the church knew it, and they did nothing. He should have been reproved. So when you see a problem, you go in private. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen to them, you tell it to the church. It becomes a public issue in the local assembly. And if he refuses to listen to the local assembly and the pressure and the admonition and the prayer that they would put upon that brother, then he is to become to you as a Gentile or as a tax gatherer. You, you basically then disfellowship him. He's considered like an unbeliever, not a member of your local fellowship. And then he says, truly, I say to you, whatever you and you here is not singular, but it's you plural. In the old English, unlike modern English, brings that out if you have the King James. Truly I say to you, whatever you plural shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, well, it will be done. And so there's a binding and loosing principle based on what God has revealed. And so in this context, this is a great example in understanding the principle and how it functions, is you have a brother caught in sin. He doesn't listen to your reproof. You take two or three. He doesn't listen to them. You bring it to the church. He doesn't listen to them. 
And so then there's a formal declaration, and it appears from Galatians 6.1 that this would be done by the leaders or the elders of the church, uh, that this person should be disfellowshipped. They come to that conclusion. They, they agree, and, and God basically says amen to that. You've made this binding based on what I have revealed in the Word of God, and I put my stamp of approval on it, and I say amen. But it's not a basis for coming up with some new revelation, as the Roman Catholics argue, because uh, there is a unique authority invested in the Pope, something the Bible does not teach. Anyway, I, I hope that helps. I know that's a long answer, but it's an important, important question, and it's one of the fundamental differences between Catholics and Protestants, whether the Scripture alone is authoritative or if there's something beyond the Bible, namely in, uh, you know, papal encyclicals and papal declarations that might be made. Does that help, listener? It, it does. Can I just clarify to make sure I've got it? I, I'm, not mm-hmm. trying to be, I'm not trying to be ignorant. I just want to be sure. Go ahead. When you say, so, so when he says whatever you bind, that's basically what you condemn. That's a, a judgment that two or more in the church have come together and say, in this instance, in this instance, there will be no further fellowship with this man, and whatever you loose, that would be something where the two, two or more are gathered would, would, would agree and bless and, and, and encourage. Am I, am I using those well, two words? No, I was just using that as an example. In other words, uh, the binding concept here, and, and, and you picked up on the example, right, but it's not restricted to that. It's not necessarily, well, it's a, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a curse or a blessing or anything like that. It's an agreement. It's an agreement where God's people come together because everything's confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so God doesn't take it, you know, flippantly when an accusation is made. Even Paul says when an accusation is made against an elder or a pastor, you don't believe it unless it can be confirmed by two or three witnesses because anyone can go around and slander a person's character and totally misrepresent them. And it's only the naive as Proverbs says, who believes everything they hear. But no, here he's, he's talking about there's an agreement that takes place where when you come together as a church and you've admonished in this context a brother uh, and he's refused to listen to that admonition, then the leadership, I take it based on Galatians 6.1, makes a formal, a formal declaration of uh, of what should take place. So the binding and losing is, is really a, a declaration or an affirmation, positively or negatively, but it could certainly be used in other contexts. But in this context, you're, you're right. So anyway, I appreciate it. The questions are stacking up. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. Our, we'll go back to that last call and question that we had. The person wanted to know if... Um, you had heard about a book she'd read recently. It's called um, Romans 13, The True Meaning of Submission uh, by Timothy Baldwin and Dr. Chuck Baldwin. Um, I- I've read some snippets of it, but I know these guys. I've not read the book in its entirety, so I don't want to comment on it and give you a full book review here. But I know the Baldwins and where they're coming from. Uh, some of their premises are, are correct, and that is is that submission is not to be blind. And when I come to Romans 13, I probably will have read this book by then uh, because we're just in Romans 3 right now, and about every chapter is taking about five messages as we work our way through the book of Romans. But when um, you look at Romans 13, it's important to understand that it's not blind submission. 
and that's clear in the New Testament. Certainly when when Paul, and and not everyone, by the way, is familiar with this text, so let me just read a couple verses from it to refresh everyone's mind who maybe doesn't have an open Bible or doesn't remember it. He says, let everyone be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have the same. Uh, you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Because, he says, it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So again, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. By the way, this is the passage that Adolf Hitler had his people systematically quote as they uh, went through the cities and churches of Germany, uh, asking the Christians to say, yes, whatever the government does, we will agree to. And this was becoming, you know, a, a catchphrase out of context in the church in Germany to allow Hitler to persecute and ultimately annihilate the Jews. And they said, well, listen, we have to, you know, submit to governing authorities and we may not like Hitler, but he's the one in authority. So we're going to, we're going to submit. And of course, um, there were not, not every Christian did that. There were guys like Bonhoeffer who said, look, you know, there's an, another governing principle that you might see illustrated in a passage like Daniel two, where you have three young men who are called to bow down and worship an image. And they refuse to do so because they know that you shall worship the Lord, thy God and him only. They knew what the Decalogue had revealed and it didn't matter to them, even if it would cost them their lives. They were willing to do it. It cost Bonhoeffer his life for his unwillingness to affirm Hitler's teaching. He ended up going to prison where he was ultimately executed. Uh, it's the principle in the book of Acts 5 where he says, we must obey God rather than man. Now, with that said, I agree with that principle, and they highlight that in the book. Uh, but you got to realize, too, that the Baldwins are these guys who are, um, I don't want to be unfair to them, but they're kind of cons- Christian conspirators. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they look at the government. Uh, they're out to get us. Um, we need to be ready to overthrow it. Uh, in fact, these guys have moved. I forgot where it is. I think they're in Montana. You could probably Google it and find out because they view this time as coming in U.S. government where, you know, they're going to come against its citizens. And unless you're in a safe place and uh, they're advocating that um, Christians move to isolated areas of the country where they can group together, uh, ultimately, if necessary, form their own militias to protect themselves against the evil government. And, you know, that. so realize that's where these guys are coming from and where they're starting from. And I would say, no, you know, I'm not going to bury my head in the sand or go hide in the mountains of Montana. Uh, I'm going to live wherever God wants me to live. And if it means my being jailed, if the government came to that, then it means my being jailed. Um, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, incite some revolution against the government. And so, you know, they argue for constitutional issues and other things. And, and based on biblical issues, they would say, well, you don't blindly follow the government. And that's true. 
But on the other hand, um, there are times when you have to submit to difficult governments. When Peter writes what he writes and what Paul writes what he writes, Nero is in power. It's a godless government. It's a harsh government. Nero ends up persecuting Christians. So, you know, our, our faith is not in the governments of this world. It's in the Lord God who rules over those governments. And sometimes God gives a godless people a godless government. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians who are not part of that godless gang shouldn't speak up and do all they can to defend what's right. But neither should they necessarily rebel against the government. So I think these guys are out of balance. I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to be unkind, but I do think they are out of balance. And if you look at some of their teachings in other areas, you'll pick that up. And so without having read the book, I know their basic premise and I know where they're coming from because they've been shouting it for a long time. And now he's put it in in print form. So it's a good question. Appreciate it. 525-1859, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener. They write, is there a resource that focuses on how to witness to Native Americans or people caught up in the Native American spirituality movement? Well, it's a good question, and yes, I mean, it comes right back to just basic principles of the Bible. You know, the Native Americans, many of them are polytheistic, not all of them, but many of them were. Uh, When you look at the early days of our country, uh, you find Congress, the United States Congress, imagine that. Talk about their view of separation of church and state, far different than maybe some other people's. They had declarations uh, made for the propagation of the gospel to the Indian culture, um, they realized that people need, needed Christ. Uh, the first Bible societies in this country, like the American Bible Society and so forth, were all set up in order to uh, propagate the gospel to Native Americans. But understand, Native Americans are no different from people who are in the New Age movement and other things. So it's not like you have to you know, study on every wacko group. The gospel's the same. Uh, wherever it goes, uh, people in rebellion against God can refuse to give him thanks or praise and worship the created order rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Now, not all Indians are in that realm. And so when you study American Indians, some believed in one God. They called him the Great Spirit, uh, Ugh. You know, um, as you go back, <laughs> they didn't call him Ugg Rich. I'm just saying I could see as I'm a kid, the guy raises his hand, Ugg, and to the great spirit in the sky. And uh, in, e- in either case, uh, not all of them were polytheistic, but many of them believed what God had shown them through the created order, that the creation revealed God's in- invisible attributes, his divine power and nature. They knew that from without. They knew the conscience from within. And so literally tens of thousands of Native Americans were converted to Christianity. Now, there's a group today that see that as an injustice that, you know, these uh, white Europeans came over and they were trying to stuff down their throat a new spirituality that denied their originality. They had nothing original uh, their religion is as old as Romans 1 and the rebellion that's recorded in that chapter of Scripture. So the gospel's the gospel with compassion in our hearts, no matter who a person is, 
We declare that there's one God. We appeal to general revelation, to their knowledge of general revelation. We appeal to their conscience, and then we preach the gospel of God's Son. So it's the same approach, whether it's uh, a New Ager or a Native American or just some lost person who's totally monotheistic. So good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. Um, Our next listener wrote their question. They write, I enjoyed your service on Justification Sunday. I recently left a church that believed justification was just as I never done it. Uh, The pastor taught there were steps of the new birth. And in order for somebody to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, that individual would first need to be justified Secondly, then have to go through a process of sanctification. Thirdly, if sanctification was complete, God would give them the Holy Ghost. The logic was that God first had to clean the vessel before putting his spirit within it. With this understanding, they believed Christians could be stuck at only justification or sanctification and never obtain the Holy Spirit And if the rapture happened, they would miss it. Have you ever heard of such? Yeah, it's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of half-truths in what what he's saying. Half-truths in that, yes, a person is cleansed before he is regenerated by the Spirit, but it happens instantaneously at the same moment. Let me just read a passage to you. And here's one of the challenges is that sometimes people draw theology from historical books in the Bible like Acts, instead of from the epistles. And it's not that we can't learn doctrine from historical books like Acts. We can, but it needs to be weighed very carefully in light of the Gospels, because sometimes when God is recording the history of something, he's recording what happened, and he's not saying that this is an example that is permanent throughout his working. And so, for instance, in Acts 2, you have you know 120 believers in the upper room. If they had all uh, died of a heart attack before the Holy Spirit came, they would have went to heaven. They were all believers in Jesus, but in the truest sense, they had not received the second birth because the Lord had not yet started sending the Holy Spirit. First, he had to die. That's what the new covenant predicted in a number of passages in the Old Testament. There had to be a cleansing. So he's right in that respect. Um, God says that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother. Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Why? Because, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so the blessings of the new covenant are post-Calvary. That's why Jesus could say of John the Baptist that there's never been a man born of a woman greater than John. But then he said in the same breath, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. In what sense? He's greater than John in that John never saw the fulfillment of the new covenant because Jesus had not yet died, been resurrected, and ascended into heaven where he would send then God the Holy Spirit to dwell the people of God. And so John was never a full recipient of the permanent indwelling. Now, he had an experience with the Holy Spirit like 
unique old covenant saints did where the spirit would come upon people. But the regenerating, renewing work of the Holy Spirit is post-Calvary. And so when you look at a passage like Acts 2, these are believers, old covenant believers, uh, who had embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah. And on the day of Pentecost, they received the spirit. Now that happens at the moment of conversion. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, in him, in Christ, in the context, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, notice there's a progression here. You listen to the message of truth, which he defines as the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the gospel of your salvation. You have to hear the gospel before you can believe it. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. After listening, having also believed, they responded to that message. What happened? At the same time, they believed they were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So now, on this side of Pentecost, the moment, the second, a person believes in Christ as their Savior, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he's given like a down payment. He's given as a pledge, as an earnest. The King James says, you know what earnest money is? You want to buy a piece of property and you say, well, here's my earnest money. Uh, Here's um, my promise that what I started, I plan to complete. Well, God, through the Holy Spirit, gives an earnest. He gives a pledge that what he began... He is going to complete, and that's why a little bit later in the epistle, he can write in the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4, and when you come to verse 30, it says that you are sealed. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So when you believe, God the Holy Spirit comes to to live inside of you. Uh, and he's God's guarantee that the good work he began, as Philippians 1, 6 indicates, he will complete. He is going to finish your salvation when Jesus comes. So there's a lot of half-truths that are spouted through this uh, statement that you've made, assuming that they are accurate. And I'm not, I don't know your pastor. I don't know anything about him. I would, before I would say this is what your pastor believes, all I'm commenting is on what you emailed us here or dictated over the phone this morning. Um because again, uh, I am going to you know, not believe anything a pastor says except on the basis of two or three witnesses. But I am going to say that if he does teach this, then he is in error. He's in gross error because the Bible is very clear. You're justified, declared righteous the moment you believe. And the moment you believe, you receive God the Holy Spirit. And that's why Romans 8 will say that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of his. In other words, one of the marks today that you are truly, genuinely saved is you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive him, it's a permanent reception. You're sealed for the day of redemption. He doesn't come in and then leave you and come in again and then leave you. Now, that was an Old Testament unique kind of experience, again, because they're under the Old Covenant. And so David prays in Psalm 51, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's an Old Testament prayer. No New Covenant saint would pray that today because we know under the New Covenant, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God for this coming day of redemption. So anyway, um, a lot of confusion there. 
and uh, just just bad doctrine. I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to be unkind, but this is why we are to study the scriptures and show ourselves approved of God. Let's go to the next question. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or you can email us at tbl at wagp.net. I believe we may have a live caller. Yes, we do. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning. How are y'all doing this morning? Doing fine. Thanks for calling. Well, appreciate your uh, your program. And I've got a, I got two questions. One, um, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. But, you know, Muslims claim that the Quran is the Word of God, and they claim all these proofs. And they ask Christians, "Where is your proof that your word, your Bible is the Word of God, when theirs is the actual Word of God?" And my second question is, um, is the Prophet Muhammad ever mentioned in our Bible? And I'll uh, hang up and listen. Thank you. Good question. Well, let me answer your second one first. Remember, Muhammad comes, he's born around 565 A.D., thereabouts. So he comes six centuries after Christ. And so, no, he's obviously not in our Bible because, you know, the the Bible is, you know, completed in the first century. He comes centuries after the Lord Jesus. He claims to be a prophet who comes after what he considered the prophet Jesus. He only saw Jesus as a prophet. He did not see him as divine. And he thought that those who taught he was divine, that he was God, were heretical and worthy of uh, of persecution. Kill the Trinitarians, uh, one of the surahs of the Quran teaches. Uh, so no, they're totally uh, off base. Uh, but I have a uh, a new article that's coming out in Answers in Genesis in a book on Christian apologetics. It's supposed to, I think, be released next month, um, and it's entitled uh, The Uniqueness of the Bible. Uh, I, I gave that message recently in one of our Wednesday night series that I'm doing. I'm, I'm looking at the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity. And one of the questions that we've examined so far is how to prove the how to prove the Bible is true, and I go through five proofs for the uniqueness of the Bible, and that message is available if you uh, call Community Bible Church or search the Scriptures. There's a ten-page handout that goes with it if you're interested, or you can just listen to the message and. Uh, those can be downloaded into your computer as well. But let me just give you one, just one proof, and that is fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is the only book ever written that has fulfilled prophecy. If I said to you 300 years from now, you're going to get hit by a blue pickup truck, license plate number 227998 on Highway 280, driven by a blonde-headed 38-year-old woman, and uh, 300 years from now, she's going to run over your great-grandson. And that happened. You'd say, whoa, man, he had a unique ability to foretell the future. Well, no one has ever foretold the future. Hundreds of years in advance, in precise detail. I'm not talking about things that are so general and vague, they could apply to 10,000 things, like the prophecies of Nostradamus, which, by the way, I deal with in that uh, particular study. I'm talking about specific, minute, precise predictions made hundreds of years in advance. Only the Bible has that. The Quran doesn't have any such things. The Book of Mormon has no such prophecy. Only the Bible. And so you take the Old Testament alone, there's over 300. Most have accounted 333 to be precise. 333 
prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus. And every single one of them came true. Uh, remember, the Bible's written the Old Testament over the course of 1,500 years. There's about 40 different authors from every walk of life, kings, governors, uh, shepherds, rabbis, you name it, and uh, most of whom never met each other. Uh, they end up writing the Bible in three languages. They live on three different continents. And when the Bible's brought together, there's one thread of continuity all the way from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, can you imagine assembling 40 people today and asking them to write a religious book? And then we're, uh, then we're going to put their book together with 39 other books and, and we'll see what we come up with. Well, that's what we have in the Holy Scripture. Uh, we have a supernatural book that God himself wrote. And so what I would encourage you to do is maybe listen to that message I have, how to prove the Bible is true. And I go through five clear proofs on the uniqueness of the Bible. And again, that will be out in Answers in Genesis uh, probably next month and uh, maybe later in the year on Amazon as well. So anyway, um, appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And our next uh, listener is uh, writing from Augusta, Georgia. But we'll get to them in just a second. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, in our ABS, uh, Pastor Brogy, we're, we're uh, discussing the book of Daniel, as Rick may know. And we were, we were talking about Daniel interpreting the dream of the book of Nezer and how, how he may have known about God's sovereignty in, in helping him to interpret dreams from Joseph. And I'm just curious, when, when did the Hebrews, or when did the people of Israel, uh, who wrote the books down that they may get this information from? I, I imagine it would be the, the first five books of their Torah, but when did they, when did they get this, at, at what point in history? Uh, I'm trying to follow the question, Rick. You're, you're being the leader in that class. Maybe you can clarify it for me. Okay. Um, actually, I think he's talking about uh, when were the various, uh, when was the law and the prophets, when were they delivered to the people of Israel? Is that my understanding? Exactly. Okay. Well, uh, progressively. Now, when we speak of progressive revelation, unlike the liberals in our day who use the term by progressive revelation, they mean that, well, God is still unfolding you know, the word of God and that there is new revelation that's coming and and that uh, revelation is evolutionary in its style and so it can change in its meaning. So I, I don't mean that. But historically, when the term progressive revelation was used, it is acknowledging the fact that over the course of time, God uh, gave his word. And so Moses or the books of Moses, as they are often called, uh, sometimes it's just referred to as Moses, uh, Moses and the prophets, Jesus said, meaning the first five books, the Torah, meaning the law in, or sometimes it's called the Pentateuch, uh, Penta five, Tukos. Um, and so you have uh, the books of Moses and later, you know, other writings were done. Joshua, who took the mantle, was given the mantle from Moses uh, by God's authority. Uh, he writes the book of Joshua and so forth. And then you have a number of men who come along as prophets and they record revelation. And, and again, these books were collected and these were men of God and they passed the test of, uh, of a prophet. 
which uh, is given in passages like Deuteronomy 18. Um, I have a, a course that I taught over the course of 52 Wednesday nights, not um, every single Wednesday night for 52 weeks, but it took me about a year and a half to do it because of different breaks and times when I wasn't there and so forth. And it's on bibliology, what the Bible, what, what, what do we know about the Bible? And one of the sections, there's six sections of the course is on canonicity. Um, how do we get our Bible? And I deal with the canon of the Old Testament and then the canon of the New Testament. The word canon is from a Latin term that means a measuring rod or a measuring stick. And so when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we're saying the Bible, uh, what we call today the 66 books. Now, Jews may have a different number. Obviously, they only acknowledge the Old Testament. Uh, There's 39 books in our English Bible in the Old Testament, and 3 times 9 is 27, 27 in our New Testament. Now, in the Jewish Bible, there's not 39 books. Uh, They have less. They have 23, but it's the same books because some books are combined, like 1st and 2nd Kings is just called Kings. Uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel is one book and so forth, but they have the same books of the Bible. And so how did those 39 books come together? And how did the 27 books of the New Testament come together? Well, there were certain tests for um, inspiration that are contained within the revelation of God. God would have a man come and he would authenticate that man. He would authenticate a prophet, for instance, in that he would give not only a long-term prophecy. I mean, if I was to sit behind this uh, microphone here in this studio and pontificate about what's going to happen 300 years from now, you'd say, well, how do I know it's true? I'm not going to be here in 300 years. So as Moses indicated in Deuteronomy 18, you had to also give a short-range prophecy. And the short-range prophecy authenticated that your long-range prophecies would come true. And so people... Uh, didn't decide what would be inspired. They only recognized what was what would be inspired. God decided the canon of Scripture. Man recognized the canon of Scripture. But there were certain tests for canonicity. And in that course, I go through six tests that the early church, for instance, embraced that were um, demonstrations that God's hand was over a book of the Bible. So, you know, by the time, you know, Daniel's around, uh, you know, there's a number of works that have already been written. Uh, obviously, they have the Torah, they have, you know, uh, Ezra, and they have Job, and the Chronicles, and the Kings, and uh, they don't have, obviously, any of the post-exilic prophets, because those had not been written. Uh, but they have some of the major prophets, you know, the pre-exilic prophets like Jeremiah, which, you know, Daniel's going to refer to when he comes to Daniel 9. Now, um, in reference to Nebuchadnezzar, um, he was he was making a statement to the effect that, is he still on the line? Yes, he yeah. is. Yeah. Yes. So what were you saying about Nebuchadnezzar? Like, you, you thought that maybe he had read some Old Testament book and that's how he came up with a vision? Or I, I didn't quite follow you there. No, no, it was... Uh... When when Nebuchadnezzar wanted uh, all of his satraps and the Chaldeans to interpret oh, his dream right, without right. telling him what his dream was, right, and that Daniel recognized that that God was sovereign and he also he let uh, Joseph interpret the dream of the Pharaoh, right. Well, again, you know what what is interesting is uh, you know you've got these guys magicians because Satan always has his counterfeits. 
wherever you have a, a, a true picture, you very often have a false picture. And so you see throughout the word of God, both you see Moses doing a real miracle and you see the magicians of Egypt doing false miracles. They do what call are called false signs, lying wonders. The New Testament refers to it, especially in reference to the coming Antichrist. So Satan has power too. And Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 24, where false Christs and false prophets would come and do miracles uh, to deceive, if possible, if possible, it's a conditional statement, meaning it's not possible, even the elect. But he's saying their miracles are so convincing that people are going to embrace it. And that's how the devil often works. And so, you know, you had prophets, true prophets, and you had false prophets. And of course, um, you know, Satan is not omnipotent. He's limited. He's a created being. And so the king is really pretty wise at this point. You know, he's not going to say, well, you know, you know, here, here's my dream. And, you know, um, uh, he, he wants some he wants some authority behind. It. It's kind of like, you know, the Pharaoh, you know, well, you know, I, you know I, I want I want I want you to tell me my dream and then tell me all about it. And, you know, it's some impossible things that only the spirit of God could do through an individual. And Daniel's one such individual, and with great humility, he acknowledges that, that the authority and the revelation that he has does not come from himself, but from the God of heaven. So again, you know, throughout history, as early as the books of Moses, you're seeing false prophets, you're seeing miracle workers who are imitating what God does. And that's what Satan is. He's the great imitator. He comes not typically with a pitchfork and cloven hoofs and a pointed tail. He comes as an angel of light. He's an imitator. You see that as early as the books of Moses, and you see it scattered all the way through the scriptures. And sometimes, again, even there, God uses a false prophet as his instrument to accomplish his purposes, which is really interesting when you study guys like Balak and and others like him. Does that help, listener? Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. All right. Getting back to that listener in Augusta, they write, uh, in speaking with a coworker who is Catholic, we both remarked that we were born on Catholic holidays. I mentioned I was born on November 1st, which Catholics celebrate as All Saints Day, and he mentioned he was born on December 8th, which is the day of Mary's Ascension. And this opened up a discussion about death and resurrection, etc. I explained to him very gently that Mary did not ascend to heaven because being a person just like him or me, albeit one who has chosen to give birth to Jesus, her spirit is in heaven, but her body's in a grave, and she will not bodily ascend to heaven until the rapture. Please correct me if I'm wrong and explain what happens when we die as far as what happens to our spirit versus our earthly bodies. Also, the Bible teaches that Elijah and Enoch were taken up into heaven without dying. Did their bodies ascend heaven to heaven? Well, these are good questions, and it comes back really to the first question that was asked today in reference to loosing and binding and really, I think, a misunderstanding by our Roman Catholic friends of Peter's role in the church. They do not believe in sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is the final authority, that the canon is closed. Basically, they embrace an open canon in the sense that while they would not say new books of the Bible are being written— There are new declarations that are being given through popes as that authority is passed down successively from one pope to another. So, you know, Mary, number one, is not the mother of God. 
She's the mother of the humanity of Christ, and she's certainly a special woman. She's called the favored one in Luke 1, but so aren't all Christians in Ephesians 1. The same Greek word is used. Uh, There's a number of false doctrines that were built around Mary. Um, You know, we speak as evangelical Christians of what we call the Immaculate Conception. Uh, I, I grew up in a church, and it was called Immaculate Conception. That was the name of the church. And there was a big statue of Mary out on the front lawn. Well, the Immaculate Conception in Catholic theology is not just of the Lord Jesus, but also of Mary. They say, well, Mary was immaculately conceived, that Mary was sinless. That's not true. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anyone born out of Adam, Paul's argument in Romans 5, is a sinner. No exceptions. And even Mary confesses that in the Magnificat. Uh, that's a, an expression that I think in the third or fourth century was, um, you know, designated to that section in Luke 1. It's a Latin that means uh, a song of praise. And so you see that great song of praise that Mary gives. And she's really a godly person. And so we don't want to diminish that. Sometimes in wanting to refute what Catholics falsely teach about Mary, we don't always appreciate her. She obviously had to be very special for the God of heaven to choose that she would be the one who would bear Messiah in her womb, that the miracle that would take place in her body that would could only happen by the Holy Spirit and thus a sinless person, an immaculate conception in reference to the Lord. Well, she was chosen. So she in the Magnificat says, my soul exalts in God, my savior. She believed that she needed a savior. Only sinners need saviors. And so Mary herself even confessed her own sinlessness. Other false doctrines began to grow and develop through the centuries that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Um, Again, where do they get that? Not in scripture, but you could get it out of a Latin translation of the Bible. Let me read to you something here. Let me find it real fast. I think it's in Mark 6 and... um, there's an occasion when the Lord has an encounter with uh, some some different family members. And if you remember in uh, Mark 6, here it is. Um, and he went out from there and he came into his own hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles that these performed as these performed at his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and listen, and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Um, So very clearly in this text of scripture, it says that Jesus, the son of the carpenter, the son of Mary, uh, the uh, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, his his brothers are actually named four of them. And then it mentions his sisters here are with us. Well, in Latin, that designation for brothers and sisters could refer to cousins. 
And so that's how Catholics get around this text of Scripture. They say, well, these aren't Jesus's, you know, literal brothers and sisters. These are his cousins. He had at least four brothers. He had sisters, plural, so he had at least two. So he grew up in a family of a minimum with at least six others uh, that were his half-brothers or half-sisters, so to speak. So she was not a perpetual virgin. Virgin, And that doesn't become an official doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church until 1854, where the Pope speaks ex cathedra from his chair on an issue of faith and, and morals. And uh, much later, in 1950, on your birthday, this caller, November the 1st, 1950, All Saints Day, the day that Roman Catholics pray for the dead, um, that's a special day designated in the church to pray for dead ones, hopefully to get them out of purgatory sooner rather than later. Pope Pius XII said that Mary's body was ascended into heaven, that she did not underco- undergo decay and rot it all in a grave, but after she died, God assumed her body up into heaven. Now, that would be different from Elijah or Enoch that you mentioned in the in the question. Because Elijah and Enoch, really, their translations were living. But they say after Mary died, God did not allow her body to undergo decay, but assumed her up into heaven. Where do they get that? Nowhere in the Bible. Uh, the only thing that there is is there's, a, there's a, a sixth century apocryphal legend. I think it was written in France that uh, has this fanciful story about the Virgin Mary, uh, that this is what happened to her. Well, again, it's not a biblical doctrine, uh, but it's a logical uh, conclusion of a process that was going on where Mary was taking more and more of an exalted position in Catholicism. So she's not the mother of God. She's the mother of the humanity of Christ. She's not sinless. She's not a perpetual virgin. She was not ascended into heaven, nor is she the mediator. Uh, the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. So we don't pray to Mary. We come to one mediator. Oh, they say, well, you know, she's not the mediator or she's the mediatrix. You know, again, that, that's just silly. That, that totally dismisses Paul's argument and the thrust and power of what he's saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So anyway, these are good questions. But what it comes down to in the end is, is the Bible alone our authority? Or is there something beyond the Bible? Uh, Now, God could have assumed Mary into heaven if he wanted to. There's no biblical evidence for it, none whatsoever. And so to make such a a declaration is to go beyond the bounds of Scripture. And it has, I think, in the end, devastating consequences. Anyway, we're out of time for today. Many questions still that came in that we didn't get to. But God willing, if he'll give us the opportunity, we'll come back next week. I hope you have a great day. May Christ richly bless you as you walk with him.